Good evening. The coronavirus is the biggest threat this country has faced for decades, and this country is not alone. All over the world, we're seeing the devastating impact of this invisible killer. And so tonight, I want to update you on the latest steps we're taking to fight the disease and what you can do to help. And I want to begin by reminding... It's March the 23rd, 2020. Boris Johnson announces that Britain is going into lockdown. The world has changed forever. Businesses across the country have to close their doors. Overnight, their revenue disappears. They face ruin. While everyone is worried about protecting their family and friends and getting sick, business leaders also have to try to save their businesses. This is the story of what happened next. I'm Graham Ruddick, and this is Business Studies, the podcast that takes a second look at business stories from the past and asks, what can we learn from them today? In this episode, we're going back only two years to the start of the COVID-19 crisis and asking, what does a chief executive do when their business suddenly has no revenue? To answer that question, I spoke to a chief executive who was in exactly that position, Humphrey Cobalt, Chief Executive of Pure Gym, Britain's largest gym chain. I mean, I guess my overall you know, sense is I think we've all come through this um, stronger and more resilient than before. And one of my reflections on life in general is that you know, character and strength is generally forged through adversity much more than through good times. We, we, yes, and we all love a good ride on things, but you, know, you really find out whether you're good enough when you get stretched to the limits. All the ties that bind you and the way that you behave with things get put under strain, extreme strain and pressure. And that's really what those two years, 2020 and 2021, were about. And I, I feel stronger as an individual. I said many times during the pandemic, and I said it to the organisation and my organisation feels stronger, is if we can get through this, we can get through absolutely anything. Nothing else in a business or even to some degree sort of personal challenge sense from a professional point of view needs to scare us if we can weather the storm of the pandemic, which we've managed to do and come through strongly. And that gives you a, not a, in any ways an arrogance because uh, the pandemic was a fundamentally a humbling experience. You know, you've got a great business that's doing well, rocking and rolling going forwards and suddenly you're closed down and it was a humbling experience but I think we come through that individually and collectively stronger than any ever before and more able to deal with a wider range of business circumstances than we ever imagined we'd have to and that makes me excited about the future because I know I've got a strong organization that can deal with situations and I know I'm strong enough to deal with the toughest things that the world can throw at us. Just going back to March 2020 when this hits you close your sites, you got no revenue anymore. There was no sort of book about what to do in that situation. So when, when you got up that morning, the day after Boris Johnson announced the lockdown and everything had closed, could you just explain where you start and what you do and how it played out from there? Look, it was a pretty shocking experience and pretty much like everybody, you know, we were pretty unprepared for it. That's the reality. I mean, two or three weeks in advance, we could sort of see it coming. Remember, we had a, we had a Danish business that closed down about a week earlier, so we knew what was going to come about a week ahead. But really, that's no time at all to get prepared. So, you, you know, you, you wake up in the morning, you come in and you stare at the screen in front of you and say, well, what do we do next? 
And I think like many people, we found ourselves running on what I call a very short fuse. It was literally on a daily basis, what do we need to deal with now? Inbound media and questioning, immediate concerns about our people and how they were feeling. I had 7,000 people I was responsible for. One of my biggest concerns was making sure that we helped them um, and reassured them as much as we could. Dealing with investors, we had both bond investors and we had equity investors to think of. Dealing with other stakeholders, landlords being one of the largest ones we had to deal with. You sort of broke, what we essentially did is we broke the challenges down into a number of chunks Stuff like you know, operations. We have 24-7 operations. We had never closed them. We didn't know where the keys were. We didn't know how to turn off the water or the gas or the supplies reliably. Uh, we didn't know how often we'd have to check that the water and the gas was still turned off and that we weren't leaking water. I mean, all those, I mean, I remember I had that problem not in a few places. I had that problem in 520 sites around Europe. You know, this, the, the operational challenge of actually closing operations that's never normally closed. There are, so there was a whole range of these challenges that when you sat down and, you know, we get on a, the inevitable teams call and say, right, let's just get everything down on paper. What needs to be dealt with? Who's going to do, do what? Let's get into a daily meeting cycle where we're going to chunk up the activities that need to happen. Who's going to take responsibilities for, for things? And we'd meet at the beginning. For the first four weeks, we pretty much met at the beginning of each day and the end of each day to take stock of, of the elements that we were working on. It was day-by-day -day activity. It was classic kind of crisis management, dealing with what is immediate and has got to be dealt with, reprioritizing on the fly, and making sure that you stay on top of things. It was a real, you know, it was a real baptism by fire. I don't think any of us had seen anything of that sort of nature before. And we just had to stay as on top of the wave as we felt we could. Did you consider it a battle for survival or were you confident that no matter what, Pure Gym would be okay? Uh, look, in, in the early days, the first two to four weeks, it absolutely felt like an existential threat. No question at all about that. Yeah, within a week, we knew how much cash we were burning. Yeah, well, well, look, we knew immediately that we were burning a little bit more than a million and a half pounds a day. We drew down our credit lines. So I knew we had, I forget the number exactly, but about 150 million, 170 million of cash. That tells you that absent doing anything, pretty much, you know, how long you can survive for. And then you begin working on the one side on the elements that you can restrain in terms of cash going out of the business and managing that extremely carefully. And we've always been good managers of cash in an operational business, but it's different when you, when you literally have no money coming in, you manage differently. And on the other side, yeah, you have to say, well, you know, how are we going to manage the funding side of things? And, and there, it, in fairness, our, our financial supporters were extremely supportive and after a couple of weeks when we got a handle on things and we knew what was happening in New York it's going to be a number of minimum a, a large number of weeks and potentially months before we'd be open again that was clear by because if you remember the cases and the hospitalization rate and the death rates were kind of beginning to really mount up through April I think they peaked in early May I don't remember that exactly but it really did run up so it was clear that this was going to be longer rather than shorter and I very quickly sat down with our financial backers and say look guys you've got to we ought to get clear on this reasonably quickly when we need more money and we will need some more money. Are you going to be there in support of us or aren't you? Because I'm going to do fundamentally different things in those worlds. I can take it either way in terms of a battle for survival, but I need to know which playing field I'm operating on. 
And I said they were very they were very clear from about week three or four. And it wasn't they were delaying, it was just they had a lot on their plates, that they believed in the business, their view was would be stronger in the long run, believed in me and the management team very strongly. They had capital in the funds that had funded the investment. Um, and uh, this was not a business that they were going to let go. They asked us to manage as tightly as we could, but we should manage on a on a going concern and long run future basis. And they had that belief. And that then sets the parameters by which you do all other things and you prepare for the future. But if they come back and said, and, and I know businesses that were told this, they were told in week four, listen, we're not believers. You're on your own. You manage it as you can, but no more equity, no more investment coming from us. I know businesses who are in that situation have come through, actually, some of those. But that's a very different brief to come through on than if you know that you're going to get access to funding in the future when you need it. Am I right in thinking that as bad as it got was when you got winding up orders from landlords? Well, I mean, you know, when you send out a letter to 250 landlords saying, I'm really sorry, we're not going to pay your rent because we haven't got any revenue and we're not able to operate. You know, we'll be in touch as soon as we can. You're going to get a, a range of responses. And yet within three days, I had some statutory demands and winding up orders and they have a 17 day time fuse on them. So we went into a, you know, in 17 days, we had to understand the way that insolvency proceedings work in this country and ju just how dramatic they can be. One landlord can wind up a company like ours. I, I had no idea that that was the case. Um, and they could force it to that level. And yeah, the legal counsel we took suggested, yeah, you're running a risk if you think that the courts are going to take the pandemic into consideration in doing that. You know, so we had that on one end of things to manage and all the lobbying and approaches to government to saying you can't let this happen. You know, you're going to need to change the law to enable that. That was one end of the scale. Other end of the scale, we had landlords coming forward straight away and saying, smaller number, I have to say, saying you've been closed. We can't understand. You can pay us rent when you're open again. That seems fair. So we had the full spectrum of landlord outcomes coming. Pure Jim was able to negotiate with landlords and save its sites. But then it faced a new challenge. How and when to get its gyms reopen? Everything was up for debate during the COVID-19 crisis. And with the nature of the disease still uncertain, reopening gyms was not going to be straightforward. We decided quite early that we or somebody needed to get out on the front foot, you know, for our um, industry and, and for our business. You know, naive self-interest is a kind of great, you know, you know, the interest of ourselves with Paramount, but somebody had to do it with the industry as well. And actually credit to PR advisors at Sanctuary Council um, that they made me, my, my brief to them historically had been, your job is to keep us out of the news uh, because I want the business to do the talking. I want what we achieve as a business and what we do for individuals to do the talking about our business and the rest is damping down any reputational management issues. I realised, guided by the guys at Century Council quite, quite early on, that uh, this, was a, this was a very different environment and there was extreme risk if we allowed the narrative to be played out and controlled by um, events beyond our control. We had to be out there telling our, our story. And that was right from the outset. So I was actually on, on question time in the week after locking down because uh, they called and said, you know, we'd like you to have, have you on there. And that was you know, part of a program of building quite an explicit platform. And yeah, we, we had a case that we had to make in that the, the, there were rumours swirling that gyms were bad 
and hotbeds of infection, mainly based or traceable to one particular instance in a small sweaty studio in South Korea, where people are trained for four hours in a group of 16. And guess what? A bunch of people have caught COVID from somebody else. But that's not representative of what happens in extremely well-ventilated facilities like ours. But that was starting to determine uh, the narrative about this. And we thought it was very important to get out, and especially when we heard uh, that there was a list doing the rounds in somewhere in Whitehall saying that gyms might not open ever again, or certainly not before January 2021. And when we started hearing, and when you hear things like that, you know that there's some stuff out there with that somewhere. It's been on a whiteboard or it's been somewhere. And that's why we got into a very proactive mode of making the case uh, for gyms, touring Jonathan Van Tam and members of the, uh, what was then Public Health England, around facilities, galvanising the industry, writing to Boris Johnson, writing to everybody and anybody who would listen about how important gyms were as facilities. They weren't just another leisure activity. These were really important to the nation's physical and mental um, health. And then as soon as we we opened, perhaps going back to my McKinsey days, you know, I insisted that the we in the industry gathered data from day one of reopening on what we could on instant rates of infection in our membership when we were informed, but crucially in our staff, which we had perfect data on. And by the time we got to October, we were able to demonstrate that our staff in any given area were at the same or lower risk of infection than people in those general areas. And therefore, de facto, we were able to prove that being inside a gym isn't a route to getting the infection. It's not disproportionately risky. So let's try and keep gyms open and get them open sooner when we can. But that was a, quite an explicit piece that we did right from the outset to have a voice and to be out there and be willing to speak about what was going on so that we could keep the awareness up of gyms and fitness centers as being an important part of the national infrastructure and that should be reopened you know, as soon as they reasonably can. Otherwise, we'd get, you know, at one stage, we were putting the same category as nightclubs and brothels. You know, that, that wasn't the place where we wanted to be in things because obviously that, you know, those sort of areas were much more constrained for much longer. And that was manifestly wrong from our point of view. And that was the essence of that was, was why we, we got onto the front foot and why I personally took the decision to go onto the front foot on behalf of the industry and on our own behalf. Did you personally take Jonathan Van Tam round a gym? And what, what was that like? Well, it was, it was very interesting. I, mean, I think he's a tremendously likeable guy. And obviously, he's become a bit of a national treasure and icon. Um, and it, you know, but, but a very clear, very smart, capable guy. And I remember vividly him arriving at our Park Royal gym in, in West London, along with five or six other people from Public Health England, to do this tour of one of our facilities. We were first off, and then four or five other operators. And he walked in, there's a sort of gantry, a balcony that looks over some of the exercise floor. And he was standing next to a, a UK active industry colleague of mine. And he turned to him and said, ah, so we've been brought to the, the sort of premium offer in the gym sector first, have we? So that we sort of get a positive view of the sector before we go on to other places. Is that right? And this colleague just turned to him and, and said, no, this is the largest budget operator in the sector. This is what gyms are like now. And Jonathan Van Tam said, ah, this is a bit different from what I remember gyms being like 20 years ago and quite different from what I was expecting. And I then got a chance to tour him around, explain what we're doing, you know, 
know, particularly interested in the ventilation system. You know, we, we are regulatory required to have ventilation and air exchange in a way that restaurants and pubs and many leisure facilities aren't required to have that. So we, he came to understand, but, you know, being a scientist and being a very rational person, I think he came and others on that tour came to understand that the situation in the sector was really quite different from what they're being led to believe. You know, we, we had some arm wrestles with them, but we were open about three and a half weeks after that, that tour. So I think that was, that was time well spent, I think. So many business leaders are reluctant to be public or I mean, the idea of going on question time it, it is completely uh, crazy to, to many CEOs, I, I would guess. What was it like? And would you do it again? Well, I ended up doing it twice, um, once in, in March 2020 and once in January 2021. And uh, y- yes, I would do it again. I mean, I, maybe I'm a masochist or something, but um, I actually quite enjoy being required to think on my feet and articulate clearly a point of view on things. And actually, I, I think given businesses have a role, I have a really important role in society I actually think when you're leading a business, you have something of an obligation to be prepared uh, to do that. And I was probably a little bit disappointed that more business leaders didn't stand up during the pandemic and articulate clearly what they were endeavouring to do and what they thought was right. There was a way of doing that. And I always tried to strike a balance of not sort of hectoring and being over challenging to the government, who I think had an incredibly difficult job to do. I mean, make no mistake, that was a incredibly difficult job but I think part of holding your elected officials to account is people who have a platform and a voice being willing to you know rationally and clearly articulate things I've got no political agenda you know at all in that regard so I thought that was important the thing that actually you know question time and all the other media work that I did the thing that surprised me about how important it was and I hadn't realized was to the people in my business I didn't realize until it was reflected back to me yeah, but it's obvious when you think about it, how nervous and anxious they were feeling about life. And these are predominantly younger rather than older men and women, relatively early in the stage of their careers, committed to fitness and activity, the industry. And they were suddenly worried that maybe the whole of their industry might not have a future because that was the word on the streets. Oh, you'll be closed for ages. Better look for another job. You know, deeply, you know, getting 80 percent furlough money was fine. And most of them were on furlough. But what does my future mean? And what's been played back to me by my colleagues was the fact that I I was out there and I was championing the industry and championing our business and making the case for the role that we play in society. That gave them the confidence to uh, retain belief in the business, um, that we would reopen, that we were fighting incredibly hard to enable that reopening, that we were working with government and the public health officials to help secure that. Yeah, as a result of that, we, we lost, in terms of our permanent employed employees, next to no employees through the pandemic. And remember, the vast majority were on furlough and could do other jobs and think of doing other things. Um, but we lost almost none of our gym staff and pretty much none of our central support staff through that period. I'm told by them it wasn't, as I say, a, an objective, that a key part of that was they had confidence in belief because I was out there talking with confidence and with belief in the future. And I, I did have that belief. I, mean, I, I rationally thought through, I, I did think this, this is going to be very tough, but we will come through and we will come back. And I thought it was important to articulate that. I did lots internally, but it's different. When somebody sees it on the television um, and hears it, 
And their mom and their dad ring them up or their friends or their auntie or the uncle ring up and say, oh, I saw your boss on the telly the other day. Sounds like he was making a lot of sense. You're going to be okay. Don't worry. That, that's different from getting an internal video or me sending out an email reassuring people and, and that sort of thing. And it had a big impact on the business. You have a very diverse range of roles and employees within your business. I wonder how you brought the more senior members of the team with you, because you were obviously a business going into the pandemic that had very ambitious expansion plans. And also, I think it's fair to say an IPO was imminent. And given what then subsequently happened over the next few months, you ended up shelving the plans for an IPO. And that, to put it bluntly, was potentially a payday for quite a lot of the people within within the business. How did you bring those people with you and sort of protect morale with everything that was going on? You hit the nail right on the head, right from the beginning. It was clear that you know, my management team had you know, reasonably substantial equity stakes in the business, material, very material in their own financial situations. And it was clear that a bad year or two of the pandemic was going to have a very adverse effect on that. And we never hid from that. And I was completely honest up front with, from, with people, you know, right from the first month or two, that clearly our current equity position and our sense of what aligns us has taken a hit. And I was really clear about that. And what I, what I agreed with them was a sort of contract, a, a covenant, which went roughly along these lines, was, look, guys, we can't deal with that now. We have to deal with the business, its survival, getting through the pandemic, coming out the other side in as strong a condition as we can, and rebuilding the momentum and the progress that, and the trajectory that we, we were on. And, and when we get to the other side of this difficult Rubicon River, we'll then look into the question of how do we make sure the incentives, the rewards, the sense of alignment that being owners in the business, because these people are owners of the business in partnership with our financial sponsor, what that means and can look like. I discussed that with our owners and I said, I'm putting the priorities as follow. Number one, sort the immediate issues. Number two, get the financing of the business sorted and reset. And number three, I'm going to come to you at the end and I'm going to ask you to think about how we reset things for management. But we're not going to do that now. We're not going to do that until we're coming out of the other side. But I logged it with them and I told the team I'd done that. And I was really open about that. Pretty much all my senior management team took substantial salary haircuts during the lockdown periods in both of the major lockdowns. Over half of them took no salary you know, for over six months of the kind of total period um, of lockdowns. And they did that by their own volition. They said, this is the right contribution for us to, to make. And when we came out of the other side, we absolutely did revisit that. We were true to our words. Our investors were tremendously supportive, helped reset the way that things work and reset the foundation for management um, so that the incentives and the setup are clear for the future. One of the advantages of not IPOing the business, to be quite honest, is it's much easier to do that in a private setting. It's almost impossible to do that in a public setting, despite the fact it's clearly the right thing to do for stakeholders and investors in the business. It's very difficult to do that under the rigors and controls of, of public markets. Um, and I think it's a great shame because it's clearly to the disadvantage of the stakeholders in that business. But we were able to, to reset things appropriately for the team. And that puts us in a very positive, positive position. And remember, I'm not just talking about the top 10 people in the business. We have over 100 people invested in the equity. Ours is a broad-based ownership in the business, of course, at varying degrees, but at material degrees at every level from the point of view of each individual. So this was not just about looking after the few, this was quite a broad base 
in terms of how we did that. And uh, it was good to get that sort of support. Today, the number of people using Pure Gym's facilities is back to about 85% of the volume it was pre-COVID. New openings are doing well. But city centres, particularly the City of London, are doing less well. And the factors that drive what makes a good location for a gym have changed. Where we're looking for sites has changed. We're, you know, we're steering away from you know, city centres in general, but most specifically the kind of core. London's the most effective city, I think, in the world, actually, by the changes in commuting and working patterns. I think if you look at the, you know, the data. So, yeah, th those have, have changed. And therefore, we, you know, we've shifted our focus as we're building the pipeline. You know, we're looking at more residential sites, um, smaller towns, smaller cities, accessible to both work and residential areas, et cetera, et cetera. So that has, without a shadow of doubt, evolved and is, um, you know, as we, the beauty of our, our model is, you know, we're, we'll open 30 to 40 sites this year in the UK. You know, as we do that, we start to move the balance of our estate over time and that will you know, recover, we think, uh, decently. So we're, you know, we're not too worried about that. Much of Cobble's focus now is on overseas expansion. Pure Gym has around 500 sites, but wants to have more than 1,000 in the medium term, as well as another 1,000 to 2,000 sites that will be run as franchises. One of the countries it is expanding into is Saudi Arabia, and that has posed different questions for Cobbled and Pure Gym. That we thought very hard about Saudi Arabia because um, obviously it presents some real issues to a completely reasonable and standard set of sort of Western thinking. And I'm not going to go over those here, but we all know yeah, what those are. Um, we decided that we would proceed with the franchising, believing that we could make a positive contribution to the changes that are manifestly and clearly going on in that society. But it was, I'll be honest, it was a bit of a leap of faith. But two experiences have brought home to me and justified that leap of faith. One, I was standing outside one of our women's only facilities in Riyadh in January, and I was approached by a young Saudi woman, um, I was standing with two other female colleagues, who asked us if we were involved with the gym, and we said we were, and, and we asked her if she had any feedback for us. And she said, I just want to say, she spoke impeccable English, clearly, you know, Western educators. So I just want to say thank you for coming and doing what you've done here. We know that Saudi Arabia has real challenges, but if Western brands don't come here and don't become a part of the change, um, then I'm worried Saudi Arabia won't change enough. And I, I'd ask you to build facilities like this for the women of Saudi Arabia all over the country, because there's never been anything like this, of this quality, at this price, and this accessibility for women in Saudi Arabia before. And we really need this. This is a part of the change our country needs to go to. That, that was the first really eye-opening experience for me. And the second was a, a related one, speaking to one of our female gym managers. And she, she explained to me, you've got to understand, Humphrey, five years ago, I thought I'd never be able to leave my local town unaccompanied by a husband or a close male member. And now I'm living in Riyadh, I'm allowed to drive to work. I, I'm passionate about fitness and health and well-being. I can have a job, I can have a bank account, only be allowed to have a bank account for three years. And I can make a difference to women in this society because of the investment that you and your Saudi Arabian partner has made in bringing this to the Saudi Arabian people. Um, and th those are two really telling anecdotes that have reassured me that we're on 
notwithstanding, and I'm not denying at all some of the problems of Saudi Arabian you know, society, but the change that's going on um, is clear. Uh, and I'm comfortable that we're making a positive contribution to that change. And I think that's an important thing to do that we've got to be prepared to do. Did you get any pushback from staff about it? And did you explain to staff the reasons behind what you were doing? We absolutely did. We had people, you know, not quite up in arms, but, you know, upset and challenging me and us on doing this. And, you know, we took quite a proactive approach in being open about why we were doing it. And I've been open in sharing some of those anecdotes and the progress. You go, you see 14,000 people in our four gyms out there working out and being active on a regular basis. And these are not wealthy Saudi princes and princesses. These are not the glitterati of the Saudi community. These are working class Saudi Arabian people who had no access and opportunity to things like this in the future and are going to be healthier and better than they were before. And let's remember, for nine months of the year, you simply can't exercise outside in that country. It's just too too mm. hot. You know, I'll stand by that decision to make a positive difference to the man and the woman on the street. That doesn't mean I, I endorse some of the things that happen in Saudi Arabia. I, I, I don't. But it does mean that we're making a positive contribution. And we've been clear to our people internally. That's what we're, we're doing and why we're doing it. And I'd say it, there are a few people who still furrow their brow a bit over it but in general they're pretty supportive you've been listening to business studies with me graham ruddick our producer is anushka tate if you want to hear more from my conversation with humphrey cobbold in particular what he thinks about how to turn promising startups into successful medium-sized and big businesses please check out off to lunch our sister publication on substack you can find off to lunch at off to lunch dot substack.com where you can sign up for four business newsletters a week.